This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. Welcome to a very special Not Your Century for your holiday listening, the best of Not Your Century. I like to do this on holidays, put several episodes together into one to give a second life to some of my favorites and to give you a longer show to listen to as you make maybe a long drive or you try to avoid having conversations with your family or whatever it is you're doing. The theme of this best of not your century is beginnings, since we're at the beginning of the holiday season. That's not really why I reverse engineered that reason. I just wanted to put some episodes about firsts together. You're going to hear about the first federal prisoners arriving at Alcatraz and the beginnings of the Black Panther Party. But we're going to start way back in 1873 with the very first run of one of the things that makes San Francisco, San Francisco. We're going up the Clay Street Hill. August 2nd, 1873. Successful experiments were made yesterday in running cars on the Clay Street Railroad. At five o'clock in the morning, the first car was sent down the hill and back again by means of the wire rope. The wire rope. That's not how we'd put it. We'd call it a cable. What happened on August 2nd, 1873 was the first run of a San Francisco cable car. No difficulty was experienced in stopping at any point desired. I'm reading from the Chronicles, page one story. The car was run from one extremity of the line to the other. That means from Clay and Kearney, which is next to Portsmouth Square, which was already there, up to Leavenworth Street. That's a 16% grade. It was called the Clay Street Hill Railroad, and it was the first successful street railroad powered by a cable. The promoter was Andrew Smith Halliday, an English bridge builder and wire rope manufacturer, who'd come to San Francisco as a teenager in the early 1850s. He may have invented the cable system too, but maybe not. Legend has it that he thought of the idea of a cable pulling a car along after he saw some horses skidding and falling as they tried to pull on wet cobblestones on Jackson Street. The first cable cars didn't look the way you're probably picturing them. They were two-car trains. The first car was the grip car. It was open air, and it had some benches for people to ride on. The operator stood in it and operated the grip that grabbed onto the cable. That car towed a trailer car, which looked more like today's cable cars. The design of the grip was ingenious, and it worked. This is from the story. It was ascertained that the fastener can be made to cling to the cable with the greatest ease, and that there is none of the jerking anticipated, owing to the gradual tightening of the clamp. When not screwed tight, the small wheels at the extremity of the arm of attachment slip along the cable, and when tightened, the start, instead of being sudden, is graduated according to the force applied. I'll translate. The grip has little wheels on it, so it doesn't just grab the cable, which is always moving. It kind of eases along into it. I mean, they've been doing that since 1873, and I never realized that. The Clay Street Hill Railroad began regular service on September 1st, and it was a smash. It ran as an independent line until 1888 when it was bought by another railroad, 
and the Clay Street line was combined with one on Sacramento. The second cable car line opened on Sutter Street in 1877, and then the next year, Leland Stanford opened the California Street Cable Railroad. That line is the oldest of the three that still exists. Cable cars came to Market Street in 1883. The Market Street Railroad eventually ran five lines. In the early 20th century, at the peak of rush hour, a cable car would leave the ferry building every 15 seconds. By that time, though, electric streetcars were coming into vogue. They were bigger and more efficient than the cable cars. By the teens, cable cars remained only on the steepest hills. In 1947, Mayor Roger Laffam wanted to close the two lines the city still owned on Powell Street. Citizens' groups fought back. They put a measure on the ballot to save the cable cars. And they won. Cable cars were named a national landmark in 1964, the first moving landmark. The system was rebuilt and refurbished in the early 80s under the leadership of Mayor Diane Feinstein. Since that rebuild, the system's mostly been used by tourists. The area where they line up on the corner of Market and Powell is called Halliday Plaza, after the wire rope manufacturer who sent that first car up Clay Street on August 2nd, 1873. Let's go to the start of another iconic San Francisco institution and tourist attraction, Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. It's 1934 and the first federal prisoners are arriving. Listening back to this episode, I think it might be a little hard to follow. But if you get lost, the main point is this disinformation campaign by the Bureau of Prisons. They kept putting out bad information, which the Chronicle and others would print, because the Bureau didn't want the prisoners' fellow criminals to know they were on the move. They didn't want them attacking the train to try to bust them out. Then, once they were safely on the island, the Bureau would say, oh, here's what really happened. Disinformation. It's not new. August 11, 1934. The first federal prisoners have arrived at Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. But you wouldn't have known it unless you worked for the Bureau of Prisons. The transfer of incorrigible prisoners to the escape-proof island fortress was shrouded in secrecy as a defense against giving underworld figures chances to organize an escape while their comrades were out there in the world. Part of that secrecy was a disinformation campaign. The Chronicle and other papers would dutifully report the comings and goings at Alcatraz going off of information given out by prison officials. It was usually sort of accurate, but not quite. On Tuesday the 14th, the paper reported that Attorney General Holmes Cummings was planning to visit the prison on Saturday the 18th as part of the final preparation for the transfer of prisoners, which had actually begun the previous Saturday. The Chronicle caught up on Thursday the 16th when it reported that 47 prisoners had already arrived, and their presence would give the Attorney General an idea of how Alcatraz was working as a functioning prison. You can see throughout the month of August how prison officials fed out misleading or slightly inaccurate information while the prisoners were in transit, and then they corrected it once they were safely behind bars on the rock. So those first 47 prisoners were really 14 new ones. There were already 32 military prisoners that the army had left behind when it handed Alcatraz over to the feds, plus a civilian prisoner who'd been brought in as a sort of a trial run. The 14 newcomers came from another island prison, McNeil Island, 
near Tacoma, Washington. They came by train, shackled to each other but not to the train, which would have violated Prison Bureau rules. They arrived in Oakland and were herded onto a barge, then marched into the yard under heavy guard. The warden wired the director of prisons. Fourteen crates furniture from McNeil, received in good condition, now installed. None of the fourteen crates of furniture, or prisoners, were big names, at least not to us in this century, though people in 1934 might have recognized someone like Red Kerr, a notorious bank robber who'd pulled off a big post office heist in Sacramento. The Chronicle had reported in January that the prisoners who would be coming to Alcatraz included some of those big names, men like Al Capone and Pretty Boy Floyd, and sure enough, Capone was in the second batch, arriving from Atlanta on August 22nd. He was serving a 10-year sentence for income tax evasion. A story about a heavily guarded train moving west across Texas on the 20th quoted the attorney general saying that the only thing he could confirm was that Al Capone was not on that train. He was. Anybody gives you any trouble, anybody gives you back talk, you tell them, come see Al. They gotta see Al Capone. Capone's group was loaded onto barges not in Oakland, but in Tiburon, more out of the way. The guards successfully avoided any escape attempts, but not the newspaper boys who got word of Capone's arrival and chased the barge in chartered boats trying to get a picture. Over the next few weeks, trains arrived with more batches of prisoners from Lorton, Virginia and Leavenworth, Kansas. Machine Gun Kelly was there now, one of about 200 prisoners on the island. They got great views of the Golden Gate Bridge, the bay, and the city. The library and the food were notably good by prison standards, but it was harsh time. It was always cold. The prison was run with an iron fist, and you were locked up with the worst prisoners in the system. Wolf's coming at you. Is his handcuffed? Yes. Which one? He's right. Over the next 29 years, more than 1,500 inmates did time at Alcatraz. Mickey Cohen, Robert Stroud, the birdman of Alcatraz, who didn't have any birds there, but they made a movie about him that said he did. All right, come on, you little punk. Fly. What are you going to do when it comes time to go south of the winter? Walk all the way to Mexico? Whitey Bulger was a prisoner there from 1959 to 1962. After he was captured in 2011 after years on the lam, Bulger said that while Alcatraz was tough, he looked back on his time there with nostalgia. There were 14 reported escape attempts from Alcatraz. All but five of the 36 men who tried were either caught, shot to death, or they drowned. The other five are officially listed as missing and presumed drowned. Alcatraz closed in March of 1963. Some of the music in that episode was by Pedro Esparza. He's at youtube.com slash music by Pedro. Our last first, the end of our beginnings today, happens in 1966. It's the beginnings of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. October 15, 1966. Two young political activists in Oakland form an organization to protect the African-American community from police violence. They call it the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale were both part of the second wave of the Great Migration when African-Americans from the South came in huge numbers to the West Coast, 
many of them to work in the wartime defense industry. They both came to Oakland as kids, Seal from Texas, Newton from Louisiana. Seal dropped out of Berkeley High School to join the Air Force. Newton, five years younger, graduated from Oakland Tech without being able to read. But he turned himself into a scholar. He'd eventually earn a Ph.D. He could debate Marx and Plato with his classmates at Merritt College, but unlike them, he knew the streets too. He'd had minor scrapes with the law as a kid, and he financed his college education in part with various illegal activities, which he was able to talk his way clear of in court. Newton and Seal formed the Black Panthers in the wake of a San Francisco police shooting in late September of 1966. A 16-year-old named Matthew Johnson was shot and killed by an SFPD officer as he ran away after bolting from a traffic stop. Hunter's Point and the Bayview erupted in rioting. That was the immediate catalyst for the Black Panthers, but not the only one. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale had both been politically active since the early 60s, but they found most of their fellow activists to be more interested in talking about revolution than action. Malcolm X had been assassinated the year before, and they believed in his philosophy of securing rights by any means necessary, language they adopted for the Panthers. By 1966, the pattern of police brutality in the African-American community rising up in response had become common. The Black Panthers borrowed their early tactic of monitoring police activity from the Community Alert Patrol. That was a watchdog group that formed in Los Angeles in the wake of the violence in Watts in 1965. The Black Panthers raised funds by selling copies of Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, with UC Berkeley students providing a rich market. They used the profits from those books to buy guns, which they said were to defend the black community. They had a signature look, black leather jackets and berets, long guns, and that made police and the government nervous. Showdowns were common. One such showdown happened in San Francisco when the heavily armed Panthers arrived at the office of the radical magazine Ramparts for an interview. The cops were called. Newton refused to stand down when asked, and at one point, face to face with an angry cop, he cocked the shotgun he was holding. The police backed off. One of the staff writers at Ramparts was Eldridge Cleaver. He later said that Newton cocking that shotgun was the moment he decided to join the Black Panthers. He would become one of its leaders. He ran for president in 1968, and he published the classic book Soul on Ice. The Black Panthers issued a 10-point program in the spring of 1967, written by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. It laid out a set of demands. Some were basic, freedom, full employment, decent housing, and an end to police brutality. Others were more radical, a Marxist black nationalist agenda. Only black jurors for black defendants. The release of all black prisoners. Exemption from military service for blacks. Education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. In October of 1967, Newton was arrested and charged with the murder of an Oakland police officer in the wake of a shooting that followed a traffic stop. Free Huey became a rallying cry of the left. He was convicted of manslaughter, but freed in 1970 when his conviction was reversed on appeal. By that time, the Black Panthers had long since become a national organization and a target of the FBI operation COINTELPRO, which was designed to discredit and disrupt black rights organizations. The harassment included the murder of Chicago Black Panthers leader Fred Hampton in 1969. Killings, arrests, and defections led to the Panthers' influence declining in the 70s and 80s. Seal became an author and professor. 
Newton earned his Ph.D. in social philosophy from UC Santa Cruz in 1980. In 1989, he was murdered in West Oakland by a member of a prison gang. He was 47. Some of the information in this episode came from the books Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, a narrative history of black power in America by Peniel E. Joseph, and New Day in Babylon, The Black Power Movement and American Culture, 1965-75, by William L. Vandenberg. That's today's holiday episode of The Best of Not Your Century. Thanks for listening. We'll do this a couple more times next month. And if you're looking for something to do over the next two days while there's no new episodes of Not Your Century, why not take a minute to go to your favorite podcast app and give us a rating and maybe even write a little review. Or maybe just do this. Tell two people you know about this show and tell them to give it a listen. Or maybe this. Maybe you're going to find yourself sitting around this week with a, a bunch of people that you know, maybe at a big table of some kind. Why not tell them about your favorite history podcast, Not Your Century? You can tell them it's like history class, but five minutes long and fun. I'd appreciate that. Thanks. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.